Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I really appreciate that there's so many of you out there listening and taking in the information that's being shared because it's not all being shared by me. You've regular listeners of the show have heard uh, guest experts in medicine and funeral planning and all kind caregiving, all kinds of areas. And why am I doing that? Why am I bringing on various resources? Why am I taking episodes where uh, I'm talking about legal strategies for the later years of life? And it's it's because it can turn into an emotional. Uh, challenge for your entire family. So that's the point of bringing on all these guests or having episodes where I'm doing the talking and just explaining concepts. And we do this on more than just the radio show. If you go to keystoneelderlaw.com, you can use the workshops tab and sign up for a free online workshop where I spend an hour usually just going through topics. One out of every three people are going to develop a form of dementia in their later years of life. One out of three. And that doesn't even get to the people who are going to have a stroke with lasting physical and cognitive impairment. It doesn't get to the people who are going to have a car accident or a bad fall, and then their uh, mobility is severely limited. These health-related challenges are probably the greatest threat for the middle class and you'll notice I keep saying the middle class. That's that's my mission. I grew up in the middle class. I work with people who are in the middle class because the care that comes with that that level of uh, uh, that that having a, a health event like that is extremely expensive. And the middle class can't weather that just by writing checks. Because if you have a spouse at home and you're writing checks for thirteen thousand dollars every single month because of a higher level of care, what is your spouse going to live on? And even if you don't have a spouse, you probably didn't save money your whole life. You probably were not disciplined about your spending so that you could turn it all over to a nursing home in the later years of life. And people are are, are thinking, well, that's where this is headed? Yes, this is what I see all the time at Keystone Elder Law. And, you know, you just don't know if you're if you're young and healthy now, relatively young and healthy You don't know in the later years of life, are you going to have some sort of condition that requires acute care where you just go to the hospital, you go in for a procedure, and Medicare picks up the tab? No questions asked. It's because you got to a certain age. Medicare becomes your health insurance. That's how you go to the doctor. That's probably how you pay for prescription meds. You know, that's so that's then there's no threat to you because it's just that's your health insurance. But if you have the nerve to develop dementia, if you have the nerve to have a stroke with lasting physical or cognitive limitations, Medicare is not going to cover your long-term nursing care. It's just not set up to do that. And this is, you know, what uh, you know, some people out there call a broken government rule book. This is, you know, it's picking favorites. This is saying if you get one condition, we'll cover it. No no threat to you whatsoever. But if you get another set of conditions, which 70% of the population do, now it's like you you own a house, your house burns down insurance. You're going to lose a ton of money unless you find a way to protect yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think 
that the middle class needs asset protection built into their estate planning more than anybody else. You know, those people out there who are less fortunate than the rest of us, uh, you know, they, they don't have two nickels to rub together. Well, if they get really sick in the way that I've been describing, Medicaid will pick up the tab right off the bat. They're immediately eligible. The very wealthy, they're not, I mean, they have the same likelihood of having a stroke or having dementia or Parkinson's or ALS or MS, same likelihood. But do you think they worry about how they're going to pay for long-term care? No, they're just going to write a check and and it'll be paid for. But the people in the middle class, this very common scenario will wipe out everything that you have spent your life saving. And that's just because of this difference between Medicare, which will just pick up the tab for acute care, and Medicaid, where they make you jump through a lot of hoops and essentially go broke before the government will pick up any tabs. So so this is a major threat that people have. And there are some tax issues, and, the, and I've talked about that, and maybe we'll touch on it again today. But this is why when I'm going through in one of the online workshops that I do almost every week uh, through KeystoneElderLaw.com, what I'm talking a lot about is, yes, there are some common estate planning tools, but running through all of it is trust planning. And I know some people hear trust planning, and if you're like me, I grew up hearing the term trust fund baby thrown around, and it wasn't meant as a compliment. You know, that was what you, that what you said about some rich kid who, whose parents set aside a ton of money. And you get this, this image, if you hear that enough times, that trusts, I don't have a lot of money. You know, but if you own a house, you might have a need for a trust. If you have a special needs child, and I don't care how old you are, if you're in your your 30s and you have a special needs child, trust planning is essential. And I want to go through trust today because I get so many questions after I throw that term around and how that it fits into a holistic plan to shield your family from the the costs and the challenges of getting older. So then people want to know more about trust and they will tell me more about that. I thought that was just something that rich people have. It's not just something that rich people have. Rich people have trust, uh, but they're protecting against a different threat. Like I said, they don't care about long-term care costs. I mean, they're probably not happy about it, but they, they're not going to lose everything that they spent their life saving because they have to pay for care. That's not their specific threat. Their specific threat is the IRS and you know, paying no more uh, than in what is legally required to, to the IRS and then sheltering the rest in trusts and foundations and other legal tools or entities. But that's not what I'm talking about for the, my middle-class audience, my middle-class clientele. I'm talking about trusts where we can protect as much as possible from, uh, from threats like long-term care. And it doesn't stop there. Trusts come into play even for family dynamic reasons. So if you have, uh, as I said earlier, a child with a disability or special needs, handing money to that child outright uh, you know, if you just have everybody says, oh, I just need a simple will. Well, if you have a simple will and you leave money to a child with a disability, you've just eliminated the child's housing benefits, their Medicaid, their SSI, uh, any other benefits that, that, that they have coming to them because they have too much money now. But they can get those benefits, but also take the extra support that your life savings can provide if you do some careful planning using trusts. 
Um, so it gets into family dynamics. What else might might come up where where a trust would be appropriate? I've written a number of trusts, and I can build. You know, I'll talk about what does the trust look like, but and I'll talk about that uh, in a bit. But I've written them where a child. Uh, has an addiction problem, and this is something that agonizes not only the the child going through it, but the whole family. The parents are trying to support their child with an addiction. Uh, the child tries, does well for a while, and then fails, and so the, the parent starts to think, well, what can we do if this child can't support himself or herself? Uh, we don't want to leave money because the money might just go straight to a drug dealer or or a liquor store. So, you know, it would be a fatal mistake to leave money. That's another situation where protecting money is protecting people, and trusts are pretty important for that. Um, you know, you would leave money maybe instead of of money, here's money so you can pay your rent. You you have a trustee pay the rent directly in that case. But there's, you know, addiction trusts, you can set out all kinds of conditions. Even if you're gone, you've set the conditions for how your money is distributed in a way that is not going to be ultimately harmful, doing more harm than good for the person you love. So trusts are a very powerful tool because it can protect against healthcare threats and all the costs that come with it. It can protect against family dynamic issues. You know, if if you think that one of your children is going to have just plain old money management problems, creditors coming after them to get paid, maybe you want to leave something to them in trust so that somebody else can pay for things the child needs without giving them money outright that will be gobbled up by the creditors. So these are family dynamic reasons that why you might want trust planning inside your estate plan. And this is very much a middle class phenomenon. It's not just for rich people. So I'm going to go into more of the details of trust in a moment. We're going to go to a break and come back and talk about mechanically how does this work. Uh, you know, how do you set it up? What does it look like? So we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Cauley, and my topic today is trusts, a, an essential part of building a shield for middle class families. Uh, contrary to what you might have thought, trusts are not just for the rich, they are extremely important. For middle class families for a variety of reasons I was talking about before the break. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about trust, but let's talk about your will for a second. And if you don't have a will, come on, you, you need to have a will that's going to be make everything go smoother for your whole family. But assuming you have a will right now, I'm I'm gonna tell you what it says. It says right off the bat who you are, who's in your family. Uh, you're eventually going to name who's the person who's the executor or or personal representative who gathers everything up and settles your estate. But when it comes to the part about distributing everything you had during your life to people you love, it's going to say something like, if you're married, I leave everything to my beloved spouse. And if my beloved spouse has passed away before me, then I leave everything to my three children in equal shares. That's what you call a simple will. And I've heard it all the time. People might call my office or they'll call another attorney's office and they'll say, I just need a simple will. 
And I'm not sure that's a legal decision they're making, and I'm not sure where they're coming up with that. I, I think maybe somebody told them, oh, you're not rich. You don't need anything more than a simple will. Um, or maybe they just think that if you do more complicated planning, it's going to be impossibly expensive, which it's not. Uh, and, and in the more you spend anyway, the, the, the more you're avoiding down the road. The less you, sp you, you spend, the more you're facing in taxes and other threats down the road. So in any event, if you have a simple will, and you just leave everything outright. You leave it outright to your spouse. You leave it outright to your children. No strings attached. Here you go. That's that's where, so no trust planning involved whatsoever. That's where you might be donating money to nursing homes. You might be donating money to uh, creditors of your children. And I was speaking a bit about that before the break. But let's talk about how a trust might play a role inside your will. Because you can set up trusts that are called living trusts. In other words, it's separate from your will and you're putting property into it during your life. But start with the concept that even if you just have the three fundamentals of an estate plan, your financial power of attorney, very, very important, your healthcare power of attorney and living will for quality of life decisions, medical decisions, and you have a, a last will and testament, your will. Fine. If you if you want to stick to those three, you don't want to set up a living trust and put your house into it or put money into it. Let's just focus on the basics. Even inside your will, there's room for trust planning. And it doesn't have to be anything elaborate. But what if you're leaving money to a grandchild? I'll just say use that example. And the grandchild is currently eight years old. Well, you can't leave money to a child outright in any state, as far as I'm aware, but certainly not in Pennsylvania. There's a restricted kind of bank account that it would have to go into if you die and that child is still under 18. Okay, so it goes into that account. What happens next? Well, somebody has to be the custodian, maybe a parent uh, or an aunt or an uncle. And then when the child reaches age 18, they get all the money outright, no strings attached how many 18-year-olds do you know who are responsible enough to handle a lump sum of money as soon as they reach the age of 18? Maybe there are some. You know, they're, they're reasonably responsible or mature for their age. But I think it, everybody would agree that if you delay it a few more years until they're 22 or 25 or 28, that they're going to be more able to handle that money in a way that is in their best interests instead of blowing it on a car or video games or something that maybe they don't need quite as much. So a simple form of trust, I'm starting out with simple stuff here. You build a trust into your will that's just a few paragraphs that says, okay, if I leave money directly to a grandchild or if I leave it to my child and my child dies before me, so then it's going to my grandchild that way. You always want to have some sort of trust built inside your will that just says, look, somebody else hold on to this money. Don't have don't bind yourself to this restrictive account where a judge might be involved or, you know, you have all these conditions and certainly don't give the money outright to the child at age 18. Instead, use whatever money I've left for that child to pay for their clothing, their housing you know, if they're going to college, you can use the money to pay for college. But somebody else who's presumably more responsible is making that decision and distributing that money to pay for causes that are more responsible. And then you set the age when the child is old enough to uh, inherit the money and, and just get it outright, whatever is left. So 
that's one example of a trust. And, you know, that's a pretty simple example. What if inside your will, you don't want to leave money outright to your spouse? Why would that be the case? Well, what happens if you pass away and your spouse is in a nursing home and we got the person onto Medicaid? So Medicaid says you're not allowed to have a lot of money if they're going to pay thousands of, of dollars every single month, 100000 or more a year for the care. Well, to stay on Medicaid and get that benefit, your surviving spouse cannot ever have any more money. You, you have to keep money out of their name. But and, and probably as part of getting the spouse onto Medicaid, we've used the power of attorney to move money all into your name. So if you pass away as the healthier spouse and your surviving spouse is on Medicaid, you definitely want a trust inside your will that just says, hold on, I want to support my surviving spouse. I want to enhance my, my spouse's quality of life. But I can't give the money to them outright because that will eliminate benefits and all the money would just go to the nursing home. So you build in a common sense asset protection trust that just simply says, hold this money, and one of the children or a sibling, anybody else, can hold the purse strings of that money held in the trust inside your will and use it to enhance the quality of life for your surviving spouse. So buy them clothing, buy them books, buy them a bigger TV if they want it. You know, you can buy them anything, but you don't give the money outright to the surviving spouse because then Medicaid says, hey, you have too much money all of a sudden. Uh, we're, we're not, we're going to stop paying for your care. Come back to us when you're broke again. And, you know, so meanwhile, all this money, just because somebody else is holding the purse strings, that's good enough for the government and Medicaid to say, okay, surviving spouse is still broke. Even though there's this pot of money that you left that is there to enhance their quality of life. So if you do that, that way, when, when the second spouse passes away, there's still money left to go to your children or your grandchildren. But without that built-in trust, if you leave money to somebody on Medicaid, Medicaid goes away, all the money will be spent on long-term care, and now there's nothing left for your children, nothing left for your grandchildren. So married couples, really, I mean, if you if you have a, a, a simple will where it's just, I leave everything to my spouse, and if my spouse has already died, then to my children, if that's all it says, you're missing a major opportunity for asset protection that's Really, you know, not not it, your will might be a little bit longer, a little bit more language, but it, the value can't be emphasized enough. It's just you're you're saving all that money while in, enhancing someone's quality of life. You're not having all that money go to the nursing home. So there's another example of a trust that would be built inside your will. What if you're single and you're thinking, well, I don't have to protect a surviving spouse, uh, you know, leaving money to them. So what are some other reasons you would build a, a trust inside your will? Well, I went through some of them before the last break. I was talking about, well, if you have uh, a special needs child, you might build your special needs trust inside your will. What does that mean? It just means I want to leave all this money for uh, young Sally who uh, has Down syndrome and, you know, she can't handle money herself. Uh, in fact, she's eligible for SSI and Medicaid for her medical care, and I want to keep it that way. So if I leave money to her outright, that's going to eliminate her benefits, and who knows how, what's going to happen with the money. So you leave it to the trustee of a special needs trust for Sally built inside your will, 
You can do it with the living trust route that I'll talk about in a moment, but but building it inside your will might work. And so somebody else holds on to that money, makes responsible decisions. You would, of course, have provisions in there that you're encouraging uh, under any circumstances that Sally be uh, allowed to develop her talents, her her interests, her hobbies, uh, you know, spend on those things for sure, because we want Sally to live the richest, uh, best life she possibly can. But you're not giving you're, you're giving those as directions inside your will to the trustee because, you know, Sally better than anybody. You're going to have all kinds of careful directions, customized for Sally's circumstances to make sure that she lives the best life, but you're not leaving the money outright. You certainly don't want a simple will in that scenario. So special needs trusts are 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 definitely, I mean, they, they can, as I said, they can be built as uh, outside the will, a living trust. Uh, you can fund it during your life that way. The, the best reason to do it as a living trust instead of inside your will is because uh, maybe there's multiple people who are going to contribute to it. So, if you're, uh, you know, if you're not with uh, Sally's parent, other parent anymore, well, you'd want it outside your will so that if the other other parent passes away first, that money goes into a standalone living trust. Uh, that's one. I mean, so special needs planning can be done in in various ways. But I'm trying to give examples of why even a single person might want to have a trust built inside their will. And there's there's the example of the underage child. And there's the example of uh, the, 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 the child with, with special needs. And there's some other examples that come up for trust built inside the will. But I'm going to come back and talk about more of the, the, the ways that trust can be used for middle class families. We'll be back in a moment on the, the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. You are listening to News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I am your host, Patrick Colley. We're covering trusts today because trusts come up so often in questions that I get asked when I'm teaching a regular workshop. I do these almost every week. You can go to KeystoneElderLaw.com, click on the workshops tab. And you can get signed up. We, we change the dates pretty frequently, but you can, uh, for the next upcoming one, but you can get signed up. Uh, it's all from the comfort of your own home. It's all online. So, uh, but I'm going through all of the, you know, middle class asset protection, middle class estate planning, and trusts keep coming up. And people want to know more about trusts. And there's a lot of commonly asked questions. So that's what I'm going through today. I've talked about why you might need a trust uh, even if you're in the middle class, it's not just for rich people. I've talked about trusts can be built and probably should be built inside your will. And now I'm going to talk about a trust that would be built outside your will. So it's called a living trust generally. Living trusts then take many forms. You've probably heard of revocable living trusts or irrevocable living trusts. So I'm going to talk about the type of trust that I do most often at Keystone Elder Law. And I'll start by explaining why you would need it. So I've talked over and over and over again, episode after episode, about the the major threats coming the way of the middle class that'll wipe out all of your savings, namely long-term care. So if if Medicaid as a safety net we've all paid into will come to the rescue 
and pay for your nursing home bills within this is something that over half the population will easily have to deal with in their lifetime. Many of you listening to this have probably seen it with your own parents, maybe a spouse. Uh, so if that's on the horizon for so many people, you have to know the Medicaid rules. How is Medicaid going to come to the rescue? Because Medicaid is generally a program that assumes that the person getting that aid has nothing to their name. So, you know, they look at income, and income can be whatever it is. If you go on Medicaid, you lose your income to the to the nursing home. If you have a spouse, the spouse keeps whatever income he or she has. Okay, that's easy enough. We move on to everything you own. So other than a, a healthy spouse's retirement accounts, that can stay out of the picture, but everything else, bank accounts, investment accounts, that all gets goes under the microscope, and basically we have to go through a number of steps to make sure that the money gets out of the name of the person who is applying for Medicaid. What's one thing you're technically allowed to have if you're on Medicaid in this second category, everything you own? Well, you're allowed to have a house, not just any house, not just any property, but your primary residence. You're, you're allowed to have a primary residence. But if, if you don't have a living spouse, maybe your spouse passed away, maybe um, you were never married, you're divorced, it doesn't make a difference. If you're a single person and you need Medicaid, you're allowed to have a house. But remember what I told you just you know 30 seconds ago, you don't have any income anymore. Your income is going to the nursing home. So when we go to the second category of everything you own and they say, well, you're allowed to have a house, how are you going to pay for the property taxes, the homeowner's insurance, the the upkeep of the house? The answer is you're not. And even if your, your backup plan is, well, I have children, they know that they're going to get this house in my will, so I'm sure they'd be happy to chip in and, and you know make sure the lawn gets cut, make sure the taxes get paid. Make sure uh, the the homeowners' premiums get paid, but there's a problem with that. The Medicaid rules are really harsh. So if you die owning that house after the government has paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for your care, the government comes after what's whatever's in your estate. So if you die owning it, it's in your estate. The government swoops in and says, "Sell that house." All that money is coming to the government to pay back for your care. But they only look at what's in your name when you pass away. So if you get that house out of your name, then the children can still help out with the expenses or they can sell the house when you go into uh, the nursing home. But it's out of your name. You're not going to die owning that house. And therefore, the entire value of the house has been saved from the government coming in and and saying sell it give all that money to us it this is just you know it's predictable that with a 70 percent chance of needing long-term care if there's any chance you're going to lose your spouse or if you never had a spouse you know you're going to be on your own and then you're not allowed to have a house really unless you want to lose the entire value of it to the government and most people you know their house is probably the greatest asset they have that's worth a lot of money, I mean, compared to whatever else they have in savings. So enter the Medicaid Asset Protection Trust. So what do we do here? We deed the house over to this trust. Now the now you, if you're the one doing this, can be the trustee of your own trust. So all that changes is the name on the deed. It goes from being your name to the name of the trust. You go on living there. 
you go on paying the property taxes and the upkeep of the house and you don't get out of mowing the lawn, I'm very sorry to say, but the, the trust technically owns the house now. You got it out of your name. Now, to get the most value out of this, you know, the trust says I'm, I'm transferring uh, this property to my trustee, which also happens to be myself. Um, and if I get sick, um, then we want a, a, a succession plan. So one of the kids or two of the kids can be the backup trustees. That's the nice thing. This is part of your incapacity planning in addition to your asset protection planning. So you you put the house in there and then there's, I don't know, 50 pages of rules about how it's out of your name. It's not part of your estate. Um, there's You have a plan for I'm going who you're going to leave the property to and... Uh, what if one of them is, you know, even if they're currently healthy, what if they get into a car accident and they have a traumatic brain injury? Not to worry. We build in special needs planning inside the trust, even if it never becomes uh, necessary. But of course, if you already have a known child or grandchild who has a disability, great, because there's special needs planning built into this. So you transfer the house to this trust. It's out of your name. Uh, you know who's ultimately, when you're gone, going to get the property. Um Common question here, does the trust stay active? Does it? Does the house continue to be owned by the trust? Well, that's up to you. You know, you can, you can have it designed so it's done its job by the time you pass away. It protected the entire value of the house from that, that nasty rule where the government, if they pay for your care, can come in and, and get all of the value of that house from your family. It served its purpose. So when you're gone, it most commonly is just going to say, here are my children, they get it. And if one of them has passed away before me, then they get the, the their their children get get uh, the same share. So it's as simple as that. I mean, it's it's a complicated, dense document, but it's really as simple as getting it out of your name, so that it, when you pass away, if Medicaid has paid tons and tons of money for your care, they're not coming in and and selling the house and get and getting all that money. So I've often heard people say. You know, if I go into nursing home care, they're going to take my house as if the nursing home is going to take the house. That's not how it works. They're not in the real estate business. It's it's this it's called estate recovery. There's it's part of the Medicaid program uh, there. It's part of the law. They're required to do it. They go after your estate and they're the ones taking the entire value of the house. So you put this into a, a living trust. So it exists during your life. You deed the house over. So I would not only draft the trust, I would draft the deed. And then we would record the deed in the courthouse, and then your house is now in the trust. To get, I started to say this a second ago and, and wanted to fill out some of the details there. To get the most value out of this, you have to go five years. Why five years? Because when you apply for Medicaid, they look back five years. They're looking through 60 months of financial statements, any statement from a bank where you've had money, uh, they're looking at your tax records. They want to see all the money coming in, the money going out. They want to know, did you transfer anything out of your name? Because we penalize gifts uh, that the Medicaid program does. So they're going to say, we want to know, did you transfer anything out of your name in the last five years? And if the answer is I gave my house to a trust, that's treated as if you just handed it over directly to your children. And that is going to be a significant gift. And what happens with gifts? They impose a penalty period where you have to privately pay for your care for as long as the penalty period is active and the, the, the length of the period is tied to how big the gift was. So a $300,000 house, 
you know, that might be a two-year penalty where you have to pay privately for two years just because you tried to protect the house. So what's the takeaway here? We want to do the, the trust while you're still relatively young and healthy because, you know, it's tragic when somebody comes to me and they're 91 and they want to do asset protection and I'm telling them, you know, you really get the value out of this when you can make it five years without having to, to go on Medicaid to pay for high, a higher level of care. And at 91, what are the chances of doing that? And even mid-80s, what, what are the chances of doing that? So I encourage people hearing this that if you ever want to protect a significant asset like your house, you want to start early because you want to get that clock running. And once you hit five years, you're completely in the clear because the entire value of the property is off the table for the Medicaid rules, which is how, on a long enough timeline, the vast majority of people are paying for long-term care. More on this asset protection trust, probably the most common trust I draft. In a moment, uh, we're going to go to a break. You are listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, your host, Patrick Cauley. I'm Patrick Cauley. This is the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. Today, the topic is trusts, a very common component of middle class asset protection and, and uh, estate planning. And before the break, I was talking about the, one of the more common types of living trusts that I do at Keystone Elder Law, and it's it's a Medicaid asset protection trust, just reflecting the how common it is to need long-term care and, and what an expensive and predictable threat that is for middle-class families. And knowing that Medicaid is there as a safety net to help pay for it, um, you know, you have to play by the Medicaid rules and you have to get property, especially real estate, out of your name because if you die owning that real estate, Part of the Medicaid program is that the government comes in and says, sell it, give us all the money to pay back for the care. Well, you know, if most of your savings, your wealth is tied up in real estate, that that's a hard pill to swallow that it's all going to get soaked up either by a nursing home if you private pay or if you go on Medicaid, the government has a chance to, to come in and, and get all that money. So the Medicaid Asset Protection Trust is what I was talking about before the break. And here are some common questions that come up. People say, okay, I get it. I'm I'm putting my primary residence in, and definitely if you own land, if you own a vacation property, if you have a, a hunting cabin, whatever it might be, if it's real estate that is not where your primary residence is, you can't even get eligible for Medicaid unless you sell that and then do something about the money. So if if preserving other real estate is important to you, uh, having the real estate itself, you got to get that out of your name and using an asset protection trust is how you do it. So so here's the common questions that come up. I hear people say, well, okay, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to live in this home uh, forever and ever. What if I want to move? Okay, well, if you're the trustee of your trust and the house is in the trust, you can sell trust property as the trustee. So you can sell the house and now instead of a house being in the trust, you have money in the trust and you can use that money to buy the next house where you might want to, you know, who knows, move from a house that has stairs to one floor living. That's probably a good a good idea. Um, maybe a, a house in a community where you don't have to maintain 
uh, the grass and, and the, the uh, landscaping and so forth. Good idea. So you can sell the first house and then use the proceeds of the sale to buy the second house all as trustee. And the second house will be in the trust and it will get all the same protections. So that's that's the answer to one question that comes up. Another one, though, is, well, what if I have to go into assisted living or personal care? So, you know, most people will sell their house and move into a nice community where their food is prepared for them. There's people making sure they're not falling. You know, you're remembering to take your medication and all of that. You're, you're getting some assistance throughout your your daily life. Um but that's usually month to month. So you're, you, it's kind of like you have to you owe the rent. So if you sell your house, what if, what if you need the money to pay for that? Well, the whole deal of an asset protection trust is that whatever the principle is in the trust, if you sell your house for $300,000, you're not supposed to touch the principle. You can always take whatever interest is being generated by that money. You can draw that out, but you can't touch the principle. So how are you supposed to pay the assisted living bill month after month if you put your house into a trust? Well, there's a back door. There's a workaround. If you trust your children, if they're there to take you, care of you anyway and support you, then you can make you or you know the, whoever the trustee is, if, if you're not in that role anymore, can make distributions to the children as lifetime beneficiaries. So they don't have to, unlike with a will, they don't have to wait until you're gone to get some of this money. You make a lifetime distribution to the ch- to the children. They turn around and pay your assisted living bill. That's the workaround there. So, you know, there's really no downside to to protecting the entire value of that house. Now, I've heard a couple people who say, well, I do have all these other properties and I wouldn't be able to to become eligible for Medicaid, but they're rental properties and... I don't know, I might want to flip one, I might want to use one as leverage to buy another one. If you're still in that phase of your life, then you have competing goals. You know, you're not you're not protecting those those properties, you're you're using them as tools and uh who knows? I mean, you might end up selling them anyway. But if you're like most people, you have a primary residence, you may even have some sort of secondary property. This is exactly what you you use the asset protection trust for you're protecting that against your long-term care costs um, and then of course like I said at the end of your life uh, the full value or even what if you're in the nursing home the, the full value is there for your children if they want to sell it uh, and just be done with the house then so what am I not talking about when I talk about this kind of living trust and asset protection trust well you've heard of revocable trusts what I was talking about is an irrevocable asset protection trust. A revocable trust, and if you Google, do I, you know, do I need a will? Do I need a trust? You're going to get page after page after page of results talking about revocable trusts. Pay attention to the states where those articles are coming from. Because if you're in Florida, if you're in California, lots of people have revocable trusts simply not not to protect against long-term care costs, maybe to protect against taxes. That's, you know, those are used for for very wealthy people for lots of reasons. But really, all they're they're trying to avoid is the cost of settling the estate. Because going through the probate process with your will in those states is impossible. It, it takes forever. It's it's impossibly expensive. And they just want to avoid that because that's more money staying in their family. So they put it in a revocable trust. The thing is you continue to have full access to anything that's in a revocable trust. You can revoke the trust. You can reach in and whatever 
money you put in it, you can pull it back out and put it in your own name. There's no asset protection there for you during your life. There might be asset protection built in for the next generation, maybe special needs planning or something like that. But there's no asset protection for you in a revocable trust because you can just pull the money out anytime. If you have access to what's in the trust, then so do your creditors, including long-term care. So the whole idea of a Medicaid asset protection trust is that it's you're, you're not supposed to be able to revoke it. You're not supposed to be able to change it. And um, you know, that's what sets it apart from a revocable trust. So another question I get about the asset protection trust is, wow, that, that, that sure seems set in stone. I can't revoke it. I can't, uh, I can't undo it. Well, there are ways to undo it. The three parties to an asset or any trust really are, you know, the grantor, the, you're the grantor, you're, you're creating the trust. And then the trustee who's holding on to the trust property, that might be you too. And then ultimately, who are the beneficiaries? Who's getting it when all is said and done, you're gone? Who's getting the, the money, the property, whatever? Those are the beneficiaries. So grantor, trustee, beneficiaries. But there's a third party, or if, I'm sorry, a fourth party that, that you can write into your trust called a trust protector. It has to be somebody outside your family. It can be the person like me drafting your trust. It just has to be somebody independent. And that person has the authority to change your trust, to revoke the trust, do all kinds of things. And there's other things you can do. If What, what if you, you say in your trust that can't be amended um, even without a trust protector, what can you do? Well, if you decide, I don't want child A and child B to get money anymore, I want only child D and child child F to get money, uh, well, you just amend your will and you reserve something in your trust that says, I can change my will and point at the trust saying, I changed my mind about who the beneficiaries are. You can always change your will anytime. That's There's nothing irrevocable about that until you're gone. So you, you, you carve out the ability, it's called a power of appointment, and you exercise the power of appointment in your will. Now you've just pointed at the trust. Without changing the trust itself, you've changed who's ultimately going to benefit from the trust. So these are, it's not as set in stone as it, you know, there's always some, some flexibility. It just depends on how it's drafted, um, and there's options so that you can protect what you have for your loved ones, and, and you're not set in stone and and if you have it it still requires a comfort level of course and there's you know there's lots and lots of details i could probably do three or four more shows just on on asset protection trusts but i wanted you to know the difference between trusts built inside your will very important you should have that because you're not going to put everything into an asset protection trust if you can't access it how are you going to pay for groceries you know so you're always going to have some money outside of the trust well, that's what your will is for, and then you can build trust inside your will because now you're limiting access and control to the people benefiting from your estate. And and why would you do that? Same thing. You don't want them to lose benefits. You don't want them to have addiction, money management problems, so on and so forth. If all of this seems like a lot, you want to know more, it seems like it might make sense for you, please go to KeystoneElderLaw.com, click on the Workshops tab, Get signed up for one of my my almost weekly workshops. How will you pay for long-term care? That's one of them. The other one is middle-class estate planning and asset protection. I'll fill in all the details. I'll answer your questions about this. I hope this has been helpful to understand what trusts are all about, how they very much are important for the middle class, give you something to think about, and make it part of your estate plan. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. Hope you join me next week here on News Radio WHP 580.